This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Russell Scott Valentino about his translation of Ken by Milyanko Yergovich. The book was published by Archipelago Books in 2021. Russell Scott Valentino is professor in the Department of Slavic and East European Languages and Cultures at Indiana University. He's the author of two books on Russian literary culture of the 19th and 20th centuries and the translator of eight book-length literary translations from Italian, Russian, and Bosnian Croatian. Serbian. His publications also include several co-edited collections of essays, numerous articles, and a range of short translations of prose and poetry. His work has appeared in the New York Times, uh, the Massachusetts Review, Slavic Review, Modern Fiction Studies, the Buenos Aires Review, and elsewhere. He served as editor-in-chief at the Iowa Review from 2009 to 2013 as president of the American Literary Translators Association from 2013 to 2016 and as associate dean for international affairs and diversity and inclusion at Indiana University between 2016 and 2020. His work has been supported by numerous awards, including from the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the U.S. Department of State, the U.S. Department of Education, the Howard Foundation, and PEN America. Hello, Russell, and uh, thank you so much for joining me today, and congratulations on this new translation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, Ken is an impressive novel, uh, which uh, has more than 900 pages. Uh, the novel is tellingly titled Ken. This is a story of a family which covers not just a few decades, but probably more than a century. Uh, the time frame also entails the increase of the novel population. Uh, family story is probably not about one story, but about many stories. And uh, as I'm trying to establish some sort of a generic framework for the novel, it's very easy to get confused. 
And that is how the narrative of the novel is. Uh, at the same time, it's beautifully written, and at times it looks like it's easy to follow. But the latter is probably the last thing I can say about the novel. Uh, this complexity that marks the novel is visible throughout the novel, and the opening part titled Where Other People Live, a presentation, is also very illustrative. And here um, I have a brief passage that I would like to share. Um, it's page 11. <clears throat> Finding myself in creation, in the land of other people, I understood that I could live my entire life there, that I could be happy, but I would never be one of them. When I pronounced the word we, it would usually be a false we, and the sort of we a person might feel a little ashamed of. And so I would more often use the pr pronouns I and they. I would mostly say things about myself that people didn't want to hear and that they themselves would never say, lest they stand out. The moment you begin to separate yourself from the crowd, difference gives rise to uh, antipathy. This is just one of the passages, but the complexity set up practically in the first passage, where we have references to a few generations at a time. So, um, how is the novel constructed? Um, that's a great question. Um, I believe I heard uh, Yagovich speak about this several times when, uh, between when I, uh, when the book initially came out, which was 2013, and when I uh, finished the translation, he did some interviews. Um, and it, it is a question, what, how is it put together and what kind of a book is it? Um, and that's not just a question of classification, um, because when you decide what kind of a book it is, it helps you to kind of frame your reading, how, how you're going to make sense of the book. So if somebody is same with other kind of genre markers, it's like saying, you know, this is a satire. As soon as you say it's a satire, you start to read it in a particular way. Um, and I think we have difficulty in the U.S., uh, maybe in English language spheres in general, with fiction and nonfiction. Uh, when when uh, a book blurs the boundaries between fiction and nonfiction, it tends, particularly in popular imagination, it tends to confuse uh, some readers. And I'm remembering a, a stink some years ago when a, an author had published something as, I believe it, his name is David Fry, and I think he published it as a, as a nonfiction piece, but he had originally submitted it to the publishers as, as, a, um, as a book of, as a book of uh, fiction. It was a novel. But the publisher said this would be much better as a nonfiction work. And so he redid it and presented it as nonfiction. It became very, very popular. And then it came out that some sections of the book were fictionalized. He had, he had bent the truth, I suppose, and made the story better by the way that he wrote it. And uh, he went and Oprah Winfrey got a hold of this and she had apparently uh, mm -hmm. interviewed him before as a, as a nonfiction author and now she was angry. And this, this idea that, okay, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's true, right? It's true, uh, it's factually true and it has been fact-checked versus it's the sort of thing that you write if you are a professional writer, which means you might have lines of dialogue that they didn't say it exactly like that, or you might insert thoughts into the, a character's mind. You don't know for a fact 
it's two generations back what the person was thinking but you have a pretty good sense of what your family is like and so the idea that it might feel true to an author is is going to be part of that compositional strategy and i think that is going on in this book um Yergovich makes several statements that are almost explicit about this this sort of oh boundary between factual truth and the kind of higher truth of a, a story that is effective uh, about people who really lived um, and uh, he has he's obviously someone who puts he puts craft into his into his art a, a great deal and so i don't think we can easily put this book on one side or the other i don't think you can easily say this is non-fiction or this is fiction it's the category known as literature in france they call it literature in russia they and ukraine they do the same thing as literatura and uh they don't seem to have nearly as many problems with this idea as we do um and i i don't know exactly where that that hang up i would call it a readers hang up comes from in english language reading but it is it is pretty consistent people get people get very worked up about it if you say this is non-fiction or fiction and then it turns out it has true stuff or it doesn't have true stuff um there are moments in the book that are very clearly marked as fiction and in fact you you mentioned the first one he says a presentation he uses these genre markers all the way through so the first one is called um where other people live it's a line he got from his great grandfather who was a german um Austrian uh, uh of Austrian descent and he lived in Bosnia for many many years and at one point he says you know I, I couldn't I wouldn't go to Germany because other people live there right that's that's not where I live and so he adapts that then to himself in his feeling of going to another place where they speak a similar language it's almost exactly the same language and yet he doesn't feel like he belongs there that's the way his grandfather thought about Germany and Austria um other sections have other genre headings and so there's one section that's called um uh quartets and they're little four piece uh uh short uh, stories and then another one has something called um inventories exactly what is that <laughs> is it fiction non-fiction uh not exactly clear and i think he's deliberately blurring the boundaries there and then the last one um that i mentioned is called fictions uh and i think that's prob- probably the only one that you can really tell has clear fictional stuff in it other times you can't tell and and even that one it has members of his family who are telling these stories and then uh some aspects are really not true but uh but they are presented within the context of family stories and that has a real feeling of truth I, i'm to me I, i it feels like true stories the way families tell stories um 
that's worth thinking about because so, families have a distinct so, way of talking. And uh, if we agree on this complexity of this structure, so uh, to what end does it work and how does it work and uh, what does it communicate, in other words? Is this some sort of narration with gestures to the impossibility of narrating a linear story? Because story is live itself is always already broken by non-linear narratives. But then uh, if it's impossible to tell the whole story, uh, why does one still have this necessity to create and tell one? And there is this wonderful uh, uh, line, page 83. Is this true? No, just as no story from a family history is exactly true or ever quite right, the truth is in the exchange of answers to the same possible question. Yeah, exchange of answers and the repetition and variation on the answers. And I, I mean that about, I think he's, he's right about the way families tell stories. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of repetition in this book, but it, it's repetition with variation. And in that sense, it is almost performing the way families tell stories. So a large family with lots of different members, some people wander into the conversation, maybe a new generation, some people leave the conversation. You have to repeat things, you, you bring them up to speed. Uh, they get repeated as people remember them, they get maybe uh, new details are added. Um, so I think that is, is a part of what's going on here. It is a, almost a representational it's a performance of, of, of storytelling as it happens in, in families. But I think also um, you pointed to the, um, the, um, the non-linearity uh, question. And uh, yes, it's, uh, there's a lot of jumping around. Um, you, I think you, you mentioned it covers more like a century. I think it's like a century and a half. Um, he starts back under Ottoman Turkey, or he starts, he reaches back, right? He, he starts in 1992 or so when he was leaving um, uh, Sarajevo under siege and settling in Croatia. Um, but he reaches back to Ottoman Turkey uh, in Sarajevo and forward to about 2012. So it really does cover a, a long period of time, but it's not told in a linear way, a linear manner. Um, it's told as he gets to certain, um, it's usually associated with characters, I would say, certain individuals. Um, and it's, I would say, masterfully done. It's highly self-conscious. It's not like he's just telling these stories and then pretending pretending that this is the way families tell stories. He's also, he's referring to Danilo Kish. He's referring to Robert Walser. He's referring to these Central European authors all the time who are very sophisticated storytellers. So these, these layers of storytelling and how one tells stories, I think, are, are essential to understanding the book. I think there's another, you might have in this among the quotes uh, that you that you picked out as well. He has a lot to say about, to say about storytelling, mm-hmm. per se. Um, and storytelling as a way of saving memory, uh, particularly the memory of individuals, family, family members. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's also important. Um, mm-hmm. There's a reviewer who had a review just recently. Um, I'm forgetting his name at the moment. And I thought he, he, he hit the nail on the head with this characterization. He said there, was, there are characters who otherwise would be forgotten or 
episodes in character, character in the lives of characters who are family members in this large extended family that would just be they would disappear completely and so the act of storytelling is a way of saving them from oblivion mm-hmm. um, and I think that's also uh, very clearly happening in this in this book so can we say that this novel is a novel about memory and maybe forget forgetting as well uh, because I was trying to um, I was trying to identify at least one major theme and I failed to do that because there are a lot of themes there, there are themes like what we call universal uh, life death war and peace happiness hate friendship adultery morals political views history memory and these are major themes but there are minor themes like for, for example he writes about mushrooms or about handwriting and those um, aspects also seem to be important so uh, I really failed to pick one that would stand out but when you mentioned memory I thought well maybe maybe it's a novel about memory and forgetting yeah uh, that's as good a guess as any <laughs> because you're right it is about a lot of different things it has a kind of encyclopedic uh, um, uh, scope It is about many, many different. He writes about pens, uh, pens, uh, and yes, uh, keeping bees, a bee journal. Um, and I think, along with memory, I think guilt mm-hmm. is a big uh, theme. It, it links a lot of the uh, a lot of the stories of individuals. Uh, runs pretty much through. It's not everywhere, but pretty much throughout the. Uh, the the book uh, and then the the third one is i would say leave taking mm-hmm. um he's taking leave throughout the book in a sense he's taking leave with sarajevo which is the city where he grew up and with his mother and the the last pages of the book are sort of both of those things happening at the same time he's saying goodbye to his mother he's mm-hmm. saying goodbye to the city so um i i would say those those three memory or memory uh, a grief and and leave taking mm-hmm. um and uh i would like to uh touch upon one of the again major topics here which is nationalism um and um everything in life is fleeting and that's one of uh, the things which uh the book uh, seems to emphasize as well so and at the beginning the narrator says it's not flags however that determine our lives uh what yesterday was a banner of hatred can today fly as a flag of freedom and vice versa uh so um uh hatred uh is also part of the family story um he as well so what does Yergovich have to say about hatred wow yeah um it's um so it comes up surprisingly little i would say there are a few passages where it's very clear that that's what he's referring to uh and he characterizes croatia of those years when he landed there uh during um during the war as a country filled with hatred characterized by hatred at that moment um it was It was a heady time. I, I was there myself in those years, and I, I remember, uh, I, I think I, I would agree with him to some extent that the that the national conversation at that moment had a lot of hate in it, and it was directed primarily at uh, uh, Serbia, Serbs, and then Muslims in Bosnia, at, de- depending on the, the moment. Um, and uh, it was 
you know, part of a national nationalist rhetoric that was pretty prevalent at the time in the Tuchman government. Um, but as I say, it's despite the the oh, there's the many moments of hostility throughout the book. There, there's a lot of hostility, a lot of destruction. It's surprising how little hatred comes up. I would say mostly he is looking at other kinds of motivations. Uh, fear comes up a lot. Um, um, and, and the national aspect does come in, but it's mostly people who are, uh, they're calculating. They're trying to, they're trying to make, they're trying to get by, uh, and they're trying to gain a, an, an in somehow, even the characters who are who are shown to be very clearly associated with the nationalist regime under the, under the Nazis, let's say the, the, the Croatian government of, at that time, um, most of them are, there's a couple of ex- uh, um, uh, exceptions, but most of them are trying to figure out how to get, how to get through this. Um, so how to get supplies, uh, how to get out of the country, if they had to get out of the country, how to, how to, how to feed their family and so on. Um, and there's a lot of distrust, a lot of uh, rumors. It's unclear. Some of the time, what's happening and where people are getting their information, all of that. Um, but I would say hatred is not emphasized. I was, I think, more of a kind of. I think the, the way I would characterize is generosity of spirit. He really is looking at human motivation, human behavior from a much broader perspective. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there is another section in this book, which is called, and um, my apologies if, if I mispronounce any names, uh, Omama Joanna's Heart Defect. And mm-hmm. we are told the story about changing names. Uh, and I have a uh, quote here as well. Uh, Joanna Skedel. Is, is pronunciation correct here, Skedel? Uh, it's probably Skedel, oh, but I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, Joanna Schedel, who acquired the married name uh, Stabler, was born in the village of Lokv near Loka in Slovenia. This is the only piece of reliable information connected with her ancestry we have, which means we have Omama's name was actually not Joanna Schedel, but Ivana Schedel. These two identities alternate with a certain monotonous regularity in her identification documents and family papers over the course of her life. And again, my apologies for the pronunciation of these names. It's okay. Um, so, and it's just one paragraph, just one uh, example uh, of this emphasis on the names. Uh, and um, uh, I wonder why versions of names seem to be significant for this novel as well, because it's apparently yeah. somehow connected with identity as well yeah it, it the names are uh, uh, connected with identity it's it's um uh, but they don't they're, they don't exhaust it right mm-hmm. so they they indicate something about the person where that person might have come from so is it Ivana or Johanna or was she of German background or mm-hmm. Slovene it turns out she didn't speak any Slovene they thought she was of Slovene background and then when they 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 acquire a Slovene uh, son-in-law, I believe. He tries to speak with her at one point in Slovene, and she doesn't know any Slovene. Um, and and when he he reaches back even further, there I think there's an Italian great-grandmother. And so the, the, the interconnections of the people and how they, how when you look back just a little bit further, they turn out to be 
something else uh, is a major theme of the book. It's a the, the idea of cultural mixture in Bosnia, in I suppose that whole part of the world. It's not just it's not just Bosnia specific. Um, that's a that's a something that he highlights, um, and he does it even when it's inconvenient. So we have lots of stories about the victims of uh, uh, Nazi uh, Nazism during World War II. Um, we have very few stories about Germans who might have fought for the Nazis from that part of the world um, because it's inconvenient. It doesn't fit our narratives very well. We don't want to hear about that. Even and so this 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 story of grief is also a story about national affiliation and inconvenient national affiliations um, that that are part of his family's history. Um, and so, so I think that the the emphasis on mixture is doing multiple things, and one of them is is pointing out this sort of oh conventional ways of telling stories, which are uh, convenient for us. The more we do it, the, the more they, they feel right. And he's trying to you know, cut against that grain a little bit and introduce things that are maybe not so pleasant to think about, but that are equally true. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, another part of identity is, of course, food. And uh, there is much mentioning of food in this novel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's not only about some uh, items which are well familiar to us, but maybe some food which is not familiar to others, let's say. So here I would like um, uh, you um, to comment on the uh, significance of food uh, for the novel and uh, maybe your experience of translating some um, uh, culinary uh, culinary uh, terms in this novel. It was a challenge. I have to say that the grossest uh, um, scene in the book is when he goes to a restaurant He's taken to a restaurant by a friend in in Sarajevo. He has been living away from Sarajevo for, for some time, and he comes back, and he's kind of a well-known author, and so this friend of his takes him to this, this restaurant. And I think, I mean, you get the impression that everybody knows he's there, right? Everybody at least has a sense that there's there's this kind of famous author who's uh, from, from, from there but has been living away for a long time. And it's a place that specializes in beans. Mm. And... And he doesn't like it. I mean, it has a lot of, it has a lot of pork fat in it, and it's very, it's very heavy food. And I don't think he's very hungry to begin with. And he's forcing himself to eat this food. And there's a woman who's, who's kind of the maitre d there, and she says, if you don't eat all your food, um, you you get in trouble or something. I'm not going to let anybody else out of here. And it's a very small place that's filled with people, and he's embarrassed. And trying to eat this this food that's very heavy, and he doesn't want to eat it. And it was hard to translate that passage, mm-hmm. not because the the words were difficult, but because the feeling was difficult mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. easy to identify with. I mean, imagine yourself trying to force yourself to eat something that you really didn't want to eat because there's all this pressure from the people in the in the place. Um, right. So that's maybe a digression. Um, other kinds of, uh, you know, this one I, I have to say this this. Uh, the, the internet helps a ton now when you're looking for food, and food might be one of the easier things to find information about. Mm-hmm. Um, in an earlier book I translated, I had more trouble, but as soon as I found um, 
uh, it was about, it had a lot of vegetation in it. Um, it. As soon as I found homeopathic remedy sites on the internet, <laughs> it became very feasible to track things down because mm-hmm. as soon as you find the thing, it has a picture, mm-hmm. it has the Latin name, and then you can find it in all sorts of different languages. Um, and I think that's pretty common also with food. There, there food food items. I think it used to be much harder to translate the special the specifics of food. Um, and now with uh, internet searching, it, it, it's much easier. I thought of another thing from on the names mm-hmm. uh, question though from a minute ago, and I wanted to I wanted to go back to it just because it, it's important. Um, it's the names are also associated with different cultural traditions, mm-hmm. including religious ones. So uh, you know, so referring to uh, he has a he has a uh, I had a little trouble with this one. Um, section it was called um, I think it was called Amija um, Streets e Amija something like that and Streets is a is a uncle and so is Amija and they're used in different contexts I guess and Amija might be used more for Muslim families than Streets and yet in his family they used both and it didn't have religious associations when he was growing up. Mm. It was only later when the tensions in the country got to be uh, intense that people started keying on those terms and realized that they were using a Muslim term or they were using a Croatian term. Um, and I think that is another thing that he's that he's doing with the names and the naming practices, um, uh, pointing to different um, cultural and religious mm-hmm. traditions and how those can be simply overlooked at certain moments and unimportant in those moments. And then they become important at at other moments, Mm -hmm, depending mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. historical Mm -hmm. circumstances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I noticed about the novel as I was reading, because uh, there are passages which go very fast. Uh, the language like moves, if we can use this term very fast. And there are passages where it slows down and then it seems to go back or somehow uh, trigger those moments which were mentioned uh, early. And that's something something specific to this, um, to this novel. Uh, yeah. So the novel also takes us to different countries and regimes. And uh, we have Bosnia, Croatia, Germany, Russia, Ukraine, Poland, just to name a few. And mm-hmm. we have stories of the same people under different governments and regimes. And this also yeah. somehow shapes their identity. So uh, how would you describe Jorgovic's take on how the individual responds to political and historical changes? And what's the relation between the individual and history? What's what's this history role in this novel after all? Yeah, so I don't think he um, he generalizes much about the individual in general. He does talk about himself, uh, and he talks about family members and their relation to larger political entities. Mm-hmm. Um, and one um, uh, short. Uh, essay slash chapter. I don't know quite how to characterize these these little pieces. Sometimes uh, that comes to mind is one that actually was excerpted and published in the Massachusetts Review, and it's called Kakania, which is a reference to another Central European author, uh, and it is about his his grandfather's work for the rail railroad, the the Austrian the Habsburg railroad system. 
which is, a, by definition, a transnational, multinational enterprise. And he uses that as a, as a way of talking about Europe and, and different conceptions of a European homeland. And um, he, he's, he comes to the conclusion that, his, that what we see today in Europe is, um, is a union of um, not cultures, but of, of um, mostly business interests. <laughs> I mean, he, he comes, you know, it's, it's Deutsche Bank and, and, uh, and electric companies. And, and he says that the, the union of cultures was a Habsburg ideal. And his grandfather was a, a good representative of that. And he goes through the many languages that his grandfather spoke. He spoke German, he spoke Slovene, he spoke Hungarian. He, he studied Rom- Romanian. He knew, he knew he was studying, uh, he, he spoke uh, uh, Croatian and Serbian and 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 Italian, and so he was um, a representative of this old Habsburg ideal of Europe as a union of cultures, and he laments the fact that he doesn't even, he doesn't feel that he, he having grown up in what was then to him a rel- relatively isolated Bosnia, um, he didn't get a kind of cosmopolitan feel for the for the world, let alone for Europe. And as a result, he feels, I think, rather isolated in the in his contemporary uh, surroundings as well. Despite the fact that he moves around pretty freely among those among those mm-hmm. South Slavic uh, countries, I think he travels to at least Slovenia, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, and sometimes up to Germany, um, Switzerland. I think he goes, but um, mostly he is in Croatia these days and maybe goes back to Sarajevo. And I, I do think that the, it comes across as a, a feeling of loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not um, it's not that old ideal of a, of a union of cultures. So is there any homeland in Ken or it's everywhere and nowhere? Mm. Displacement is a big is a big theme. I, I don't know how to answer that. A homeland. I mean, you you probably learn most about Sar- Sarajevo. In this book, Sarajevo and maybe second mm-hmm. is probably Dubrovnik, mm-hmm. because a lot of his family lived there. They were railroad workers too, and they moved around, and they only came there because the Habsburgs needed people to work in this new territory that they had just annexed. And so, that's another aspect of the book. I mean, this sort of feeling of being a, a temporary resident, um, someone who has only been there for three generations, four, five at the most, and then they all go elsewhere. So the sense of a homeland is, it's definitely not anything longer than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, I would say, he, I think he is poking holes in the, the, the notion, which is often associated with nationalism, mm-hmm that you go with a place, you know, and your, your, your place is there. I think it, a lot of Americans feel this way. And yet many of them are only three or four generations into it. And his family lived in Bosnia longer than some Americans have lived in mm-hmm. the United States. So, um, yeah, so homeland, it's a troubled category in the mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. 
So I would like to put two concepts uh, together, nationalism and multi-ethnicity. And uh, there is a gesture in this book to speculate about what nation is and how one can define the boundaries of one nation when there are so many divergences within one nation. Uh, there are also many episodes which focus not only on one's perception of their own identity, but also on how this identity is presented by the state. Very often the identity that is declared by the state, for example, can differ from the one that the person declares. For example, being a German or a Croat, a Croat can also have some Germanness, which means that the two identities will somehow shape each other and change each other. So how can one untangle these multiple threads, or is, and is it necessary to untangle them? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm remembering uh, in, the 90s, in the 1990s when I was in Croatia, I came up against this notion um resistance to the notion of a of a, of a mixed identity mm. um and uh it was a as i said before it was a highly it was very tense uh and they were in a conflict right at that moment so it was understandable in some ways that people might resist um that sense that you could be more than one thing they, they were looking for Unity and unity sometimes has this this, con, this uh, correlate of being exclusion exclusionary. Right? You, if you're if you're with us, you you can't you can't have these other aspects of your identity. Um, but I did find that there was a kind of a, a mixed identity in many in many parts of the country, particularly on the coast um, and in Istria. And I believe that that is the, the sort of uh, Bosnia that uh, Jergovic grew up in. Um, I'm not sure to what extent he would say that it's like that now. I think it changed for him during the war and after the war. Um, and those lines, that tendency to separate and uh, ferret out these kind of mixtures and make it more like a mosaic instead of a, a hybrid. Uh, I think that has mm, that comes out in the book in a couple of places, and the feeling that that Bosnia is no longer uh, is is palpable here and there. So I don't think it's possible to separate them in the book. Um, Think they are mixed and i think he's doing it deliberately he shows okay there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that which is it's probably best demonstrated when he discusses his his great grandparents those those uh, individuals who are kind of the core of the family the carlo and his and joanna and then um his uh grandparents um uh, the the races in, in uh R -E -J -Z, uh, J -C. They, they probably exemplify this, this mixed uh, identity most. Um, but it is, as I say, something that seems to have passed with them, mm -hmm. at least in the way the book presents it. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if uh, you could share some professional tips with us, uh, how you managed to keep up with all the changes and all the threads while translating this massive text. Yeah. That's a good question, um, because yeah, it, when you translate a long book, 
um, it, it's easy to forget. Mm-hmm. What I, you know, you did something on page twenty-seven, and now it's it comes up again, and you say, "Well, that's it. Where did I see that?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, taking keeping really good notes is uh, uh, necessary. And when I first started translating the book, I I was thinking about how to keep notes. Generally, I've just kept sheets of notes when I've translated books. This one was longer, so I wasn't sure if I if I could uh, do it the same way. Plus, I wanted to do something more interesting, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so I started uh, I started keeping a, a blog about it. And so I was writing blog posts about uh, sort of to to remind myself uh, in in a way, but also to uh, to I was thinking of it almost like one of those notebooks that Dostoevsky kept when he was writing his writing his novels, and then you could read the novel, and then you could read the notebook and mm-hmm. see what he was thinking when he when he read the notebook. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know, if I just put it up there, it's not it's not like it's any pressure. Um, and so I, I started doing that, and about a hundred pages in, maybe. 12 posts in, I got an email from a, uh, an un, unfamiliar address and it, it looked familiar, but I, I didn't, I didn't know this person. It was clear. And, uh, he said, um, if the author could ever, uh, help out in any of these questions <laughs> that you have, uh, he would be happy to help. And so that, it was the author. He was reading my blog from, uh, from Croatia, and uh, of course, I said uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, if you, if, if I'll have some questions for you, and so yes, I, I did ask him occasionally uh, questions. It was actually really interesting to get the answers from him. He was clearly, he is clearly a storyteller. Sometimes I would ask him, you know, this word I couldn't find it anywhere, and I wonder if you could explain, you know, what it's doing in this passage, and or just tell me what it means, and. He said, "Oh, that's a wonderful word. It's when you know in the westerns when they they, they go out of the uh, on the second floor, they jump out and they're trying to escape. That's it's mm-hmm. the thing on the roof where they run across." So he's telling me a story in order to explain how this word works. I think it's like a gable or something like that. Steam is the, the word, and uh, and uh, I was having trouble locating it. Anyway, so his our, our conversations on email were something like that, where I would ask him something about, you know, a fairly technical thing, and he would give me a narrative, um, which just, I think it's just the way his mind works. He's a storyteller. Um, and so, yes, the blogging helped a lot, um, and uh, those people can read those blogs, and people were reading them, and then they were, they had opinions. Um, like that, you mentioned O, o Mama and uh, o, o Papa. O Papa, it doesn't exist in Croatian. O Mama does. It, the, the the word that he was using was O Tata. Mm-hmm. Tata is mm-hmm. dad, mm-hmm. and O Tata is. Uh, I didn't. I didn't. I had never run into it before. It's basically a variation on grandpa or great grandpa, and in this case, uh, it's probably derived from the German. Oma and Opa, um, but um, it is used by some families, especially of German descent, in that part of the world. And so I, I wasn't sure if I want how, what how I wanted to handle it. Should I just say Grandpa every time, Grandpa Carlo? Uh, uh, should I say 
should I use the Croatian? Otata, Otata Carlo. Um, people, if it's a long book and it, it comes up a lot, you know, they'll they'll figure it out. Um, and so uh, I, I I decided to go with Omama and Opapa um, rather than Otata um, because it seemed close. And as, as I say, people did get they would get used to it. Uh, and it's clear enough. And Papa is like Dad, so it it it's a some it's a semi translation as a translation adaptation. But people had opinions about this, mm -hmm. and when I posted a blog post about it, several people said, "Oh, please use," <laughs> and others said, "This is common in my family. It doesn't sound outlandish at all." Um, so it was interesting to see uh, the re the responses I would get, and the, the readers were all over the place. Um, they weren't just in the U.S. They, they were readers from different countries. Um, I guess they probably still are. The book is relatively fresh. Um, yeah, so – and the Turkishisms I had to keep track of. There are lots of Turkishisms, and Bosnian uses a slightly different variety of, 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 of whatever that language is called, Croatian, Serbian, Bosnian, however, or Serbo-Croatian. Some people still call it that, um, and it, there, it happens to be characterized by many words derived from Turkish. Um, and so I think one of the posts has a whole list of – all these Turkish words, Turkish-derived words, uh, in 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 his speech, and he he's very he, he's very strategic in how he uses them. So if it's a Croatian character, the Turkishisms probably are not there, right? If it's a it's a character from Sarajevo, they probably will use this komšija or whatever uh, for neighbors. Um, but um, he, so it the the language that they use is also differentiating. Mm -hmm. Where they come from. Same with Dubrovnik. You know, they, they don't use so many Turkishism. Um, they might use something like uh, uh, something derived from Italian. Okay. Well, that's anyway. So keeping track. Yes. Uh, well, it sounds like a fascinating translation journey, and uh, it looks like uh, technology can also be uh, helpful today. Uh, I wonder Absolutely. how. Uh, 21st translation differs from, let's say, 19th century translation or techniques. Uh, how oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think I think it differs quite a bit, largely because of what's a, mm -hmm. what the resources available. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can do internet searches. You can go to a corpus. Uh, not not all languages. Many languages don't have this kind of uh, this kind of richness. Croatian and Serbian Bosnia do do pretty well. They're not high, high resource languages like French or, or Spanish or English but, or German, but uh, they, do, they do have a number of uh, resources and you can, if, if, especially if you don't have, like during a pandemic, you don't have access to a library, you can go online mm -hmm. and find a lot of them. Well, uh, thank you so much, Russell. Thank you for your insights. And again, congratulations on this wonderful translation. And uh, thank you for making this uh, wonderful book available to uh, Anglophone readers. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, today I spoke with Russell Scott Valentino about um, his translation of Ken by um, Miljenko Jergovic. The book uh, was published by Archipelago Books in 2021. Uh, thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>